In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by my mom, Robin Knoll, who shares her experience going through the process of recognizing the unhealthy, toxic elements of our church, attempting to fight for change, and ultimately deciding it was time to leave. This week's conversation is based on the topics and themes in chapter 13 of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers, and is part one of two. If you enjoyed today's conversation and haven't read the book, the link to pick it up is in the description below. If you're a first-time listener, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crumpled Papers podcast. My name is Austin Knoll, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Today, we have Robin Knoll, who just so happens to coincidentally be my mom. Uh, <laughs> mom, Robin Knoll, how are you? Thanks for being here. Hello, son. How are you? <laughs> there was a wide pool of applicants for this episode, and I was like, no, she, she stands out. And I was like, wait a minute. On the paper, I was like, wait, your last name is my last name. Is this... So I was blown away to realize you're my wow. mom. So this is pretty amazing. Is that how I got this part? Was it nepotism? I had the same last name as you? There was, there was no partisanship. It was just me going through the best <laughs> candidate and realizing later, oh, wait, you're my mom. <laughs> I'm so honored. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this chapter is, mm-hmm. or the, the chapter that this episode is based off of is chapter 13, titled A Final Stand. Very dramatic. And I wanted to have you on because this chapter is me sharing the kind of the end of the story of our experiences in the church that I was born in and grew up in that you and dad found in your what was it 30s early 30s 20s late 20s okay so this yeah. well, chapter I think he was 21 or 22 when he started going there and I was 28 okay, okay. so this this chapter was kind of the culmination of, of kind of our final stand, if you will, at this Mm. church and our change of perspective and our decision to move on, which happened for us around the same time, kind of different times between me and the rest of the family. But in this chapter, I do talk a lot about, uh, I'm obviously my own transition out, but then as well as you guys and my two younger siblings. So I wanted to have you on to really tell your side of your side and your experiences of most of my experiences that I tell within my book. My whole story okay. going on with I tell in my entire book, you guys are there as kind of secondary characters, but you play a vital role in it. So this episode, I wanted to give you the chance to kind of fill in the blanks and be that other side of all the times that I was going through things, what you guys were going through at those same times. So this should be a very interesting conversation from the parents' perspective. Yeah. That's awesome because uh, there have been, I don't even know how many people ever since your book came out in the podcast where I'll get contacted by somebody, even friends that I went to high school with and people <laughs> I knew in college and they'll contact me and they'll be like, so when did you know, or when did you decide to leave the church? Did you know any of this was going on with Austin? Did you, how did you figure yeah. this out? Like they, they want these little gaps filled in. So that's pretty cool that you're doing this episode this way. Yeah. And just to let you know, you're not getting paid. I'm sorry, but uh-huh. I quit. <laughs> and that's why you're here. So. Anyway, so I want to start off with, of course, the question that I ask every guest to start this podcast is, why don't you give us a general overview of yourself and your background, particularly in regards to your church and faith journey, and maybe lead that into, actually, let's start with that. Let's start with that question. 
my general background and church and faith journey. Well, background-wise, I mostly grew up in Washington State. I was born in Spain to a Puerto Rican father and Irish mother. You know, we moved a lot when I was younger. We're a military family. But for the most part, I grew up on Whidbey Island, really cool little town, Oak Harbor. Got to see orca whales in the mornings before schools, before school days. And then the Seattle area through high school and college. And I worked in the film and television industry as an actress and then producing and writing. Wound up doing a show up there in Seattle. I was with the Seahawks for a while as a Seahawks cheerleader, you know, getting commercial work that way. And then I started doing a TV show up there. Ranger Charlie and Roscoe show. I talked to a little uh, raccoon puppet every day on TV. <laughs> Which but, um, sounds dumb, but you were pretty well known up there for a long time. You kind of still are with people in that generation. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know how all that show did so well in the ratings, but it did. It was a very, very corny, corny show. But anyways, <laughs> I did that show for like five, over 500 episodes. I think it was like 520 episodes. Then I left that show and moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting. And, um, what happened when I first moved to LA is, um, you know, I wasn't really into spiritual things. You know, I went to Club Malibu as a senior up in Canada, you know, this like Christian camp, but it wasn't like I was really that into God. You know, I was one of those people that kind of, um, you know, I prayed to God when I really needed something like yeah. in college, you know, please God, don't let me be pregnant. Please God. don't. <laughs> yeah. let, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. No, no. And, um, I was that person, you know, if I really needed something, then, then I was praying. But other than that, uh, God was kind of just, you know, on the back burner. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I was very excited uh, to find this ministry called the Arts Media Sports Ministry that had all of these actors, dancers, singers, writers, um, musicians, uh, so many talented people. And uh, I was really excited when I got invited to go there. This girl at the gym invited me, who I still am friends with 30 years later. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I, and I, and I went to this church, uh, I wasn't looking for God, to be honest. I, I just thought, wow, well, you know, Hollywood's really a crazy town. A lot of crazy things happen here. I'm going to check out this church where all these actors and writers and artists are, because at least these people are probably not into the super crazy stuff of Hollyweird. <laughs> but, um, I thought this would be a good place to meet friends who are also in the industry who are not involved in the crazy stuff. Um, and it was really amazing at first. It really was. All people in the industry, I met so many incredible friends there. Um, I'm still you know, best friends with people that I met within a week of moving to LA, uh, who I, I have friends from there that I still talk to or text with literally every day or every other day. And it's what, 31, 32 years later, I don't know. That was uh, 1991, 1992. Yeah, 1992. So anyways, it was just a great experience. And there were so many people there who loved God. And what I liked about it, instead of a church where there was a bunch of people in the film industry who happened to sort of be interested in God, it was a group of people who loved God who happened to also be in the industry. And yeah. that was very, very, very attractive to me. And um, we did so many fun things together and... Um, it was just a very exciting and fun time to be in the film industry alongside other people in the industry, but who were, um, who had their priorities. I felt, I felt like their priorities were aligned in such a way that it really resonated with how I wanted to be walking in my life. And I would say that it was pretty good for a long while. 
and um, then came a point, I would say there's like two chapters really of that part of my church life those years, because initially there's this, the, the first group, like this big umbrella group that has all these churches all over the world. And this little part of it that was all actors and professional athletes and dancers and singers and writers and blah, blah, blah. Um, that became more and more unhealthy, controlling, very fear-based, um, and more and more unattractive because that it was just getting further away from God as it became more and more controlling. Uh, because my, my belief now, I don't think I saw it then, but now is that, you know, when you're really leaning into God and, and trusting the Holy Spirit, there's just no need for control. Yeah. There's no need for it. It doesn't even need to exist. You don't need to control things or other people or, you know, but that's what was going on there. And when I say there's sort of two chapters at a certain point, the church had a split and I felt so grateful because I went with the part of the church that had decided to be less legalistic, less controlling, less, (laughs) you know, just hands on and white knuckling everything. So I felt really grateful for that. And a lot of my friends went that direction. Some of my friends went with the group that was remaining more legalistic is how that would be my perspective on it. Um, Again, people I love and still love, but we, we wanted something different clearly. And this new group, I would say, again, it was really great for several years. I would say, I don't know, seven, eight years. And little by little, I didn't see it until later when you were in the youth ministry. That's when I really saw it. But little by little, it started becoming more legalistic, controlling, fear-based religiosity, Mm. Uh, as opposed to the spiritual community that I wanted. And um, a lot of rules, a lot of control, a lot of um, white-knuckling people and feeling like they have to go by your advice and what you think they should do. Overreach. And overreach, big-time overreach. Huge boundaries crossed left and right. Um, But, you know, I shouldn't be surprised at that because it was in their DNA, This was a a branch off of that big, big church that was very legalistic and controlling. And that church is still in existence as well. But um, this was a branch off that. And if you don't get in there really deep and start, you know, sort of sifting and changing on a core, core level and aligning with the spirit, um, that was just what was in their DNA. And these were not, it's not because they were big, bad, terrible, awful people. It's just, I believe it's what they knew. And, you know, I have ways in my character and in my life, things that I was growing up, even dumb things like my mom wanted the towels folded a certain way. And I thought it was the most (laughs) ridiculous thing growing up. But sure enough, here I am an adult. I want my kids folding the towels that way because I think it looks so good and so neat. (laughs) It really doesn't matter. But, you know, people can become attached to these specific ways of doing things. And that is a joke level, you know, the towels, who cares? Mm -hmm. But in church, this had become something not on a joke level. That I now look back and go, okay, it took me a long time to be able to use these words. But what I'm looking at when I was there, I remember when I realized it all, oh, holy smokes, this is emotional abuse. This is spiritual abuse. This is psychological abuse that I'm witnessing here. And it was very hard for me to wrap my brain around that. Um, But 
I'm sure we'll get into it further in the conversation, but really that came, that those realizations came from uh, you being in the youth ministry. That's when I really saw it all. Yeah. I mean, what you said about having to change things at a core level, I thought of, and I don't think this is a metaphor I've used before, but I came into mind was a tree where you can prune branches all day long and cut off branches, cut off bad branches, cut off bad branches. But if you do not replant the roots, those branches that are coming back and growing back will keep growing back the exact same way from the same yes. core. Spot which is on. Like, it is what happened in our church, what happens in many churches. It is, and some just let the branches go because they don't care. But the ones that at least do something because their hearts are in the right place and are trying to change things, or maybe in the worst cases, it's they're doing it just for show. They will cut branches off that are clearly, obviously, overtly bad, but mm. nothing systemic changes. So you wait a couple months, a couple years, and before you know it, that exact same branch is back or a slight variation of that branch is back in a different place in the exact yeah. same way. Same methodology, same mindset, same perspective, whatever. That's that whatever that practices, you know, stems from. Yeah, it's sort of like when a marriage is having trouble and people put a bandage on right. these symptoms instead of going deep and dealing with what's really going on there at a heart level. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you started to touch on this, but I want to get more specific. At what point, because and it's very true, there were kind of two halves. I think there were, there were two halves in the external uh, context of our church organization from being this big organization to then breaking off and trying to do things differently. And then personally, at least for me, I feel like there was two halves in one half being unaware that there were many systemic core problems still present and then realizing because the world changes a lot when you realize you're part of an organization that you thought was healthy and then when it's not anymore. Yes. Um, so at what point for you did you begin to realize that our church was not as healthy as you had once believed? Well, I think definitely once you were in the youth ministry, because you yeah. are my oldest child. And so now I know that there are literally a couple hundred parents who yeah. have dealt with this at that specific church and who did speak up about it, but I didn't have an older child. Um, so you were my first that I, you know, I'm sorry you had to be the guinea pig, Austin. Thanks, um, but, <laughs> but, um, I do have days where that still, you know, pains me. And I feel so sad that you went through the things that you went through there. But definitely that's when I saw things is once you were in the youth ministry. And I will say there was a time period when you were four and a half years old, when I had a death experience happen with an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured no. that put me on bed rest for, I mean, I was often on bed rest for four years. I didn't drive a car for four years. I didn't walk very well for two years. Didn't walk at all for, for most of that two years, mm -hmm. uh, just lots of health problems. So I wasn't even at church for a few years, not at all. And then little by little, when I was able to come back to church, I mean, it was a good almost seven years before yeah. my body was uh, working normally again, and I could walk normally and drive a car and things like that. So there's a chunk of time that I missed there where this new group that had broken off that I thought was so great and, and seemed so much better than that other yeah. group. 
now I'm off of bed rest. I'm getting more active in life. And you are 12 years old entering into the youth ministry. And so that is where I started seeing a lot of cracks that were very, very concerning to me as a parent. But I would say, you know, at first, dad and I, we thought, you know, this is a one or two person issue. You know, this youth leader did this thing where that wasn't so good. That was a huge boundary cross. And what we were doing is we would go directly to that youth leader. We didn't realize yet that it was a whole paradigm problem, that this was deep in the DNA. And it was a very unhealthy and I would even say in some aspects, toxic uh, community as a church and as a youth ministry, especially now that I've experienced some healthy youth ministries now that we're not at that church, that when you really see the difference, you just look back and go, oh, holy smokes, that was really unhealthy. But when you're in it, it's very hard to see it, Um, partly because you you love these people. You know, Mm -hmm. these people you've been going to church with, with 20 years, 25 years, the best of friends, you've seen their babies born and raised, you love their kids, their kids, they love my kids, you know, people who were very involved when we adopted our two youngest kids, people that were there for us, those years that I was on bed rest, there for us, you know, so you've created family there. And with family, you know, you're willing to walk through the dysfunctional aspects. And Try to help change it. Try to fix it. Because there will be. Try to look at it. Yeah. Because it's not going to be perfect. However, um, that's, I believe, a big problem in the church we used to go to. That's the thing that people say all the time. Well, you're never going to find a perfect church where there's no perfect church out there. Well, there's not. But you know what? They're not all abusive. They're not all spiritually, emotionally, psychologically abusive of children, teenagers, and young adults. And when I was speaking up between 2017 and 2019, I did speak up about these abuses to the leaders, which we'll get into. Um, I did not hold back. These were calm conversations, um, but I, you know, definitely let them know what I was seeing and that there were all these other parents so concerned. At the time, I did not know about the sexual abuse allegations that are now, you know, in the news and LA Times and Rolling Stone magazine, all these things that have come out just in the last few months. I didn't know about the sexual abuse allegations. What I spoke up about were emotional, psychological, and spiritual abuses that I was 100% certain is what I was witnessing. But jumping back, what we would do is we would just go directly to the person because it's like, oh, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. If I were leading a church myself, it would be a mess. But I'm not leading a church. They're choosing to lead a church. And it's important for the members to tell them uh, when there's concerns that are, it's not the same as, hey, I don't like your songbooks or, hey, I wish you'd do this at communion. or These were substantial and sometimes egregious abuses. So I I don't use the word abuse lightly. I, I rarely use that word. But in this case, sadly, I mean, it broke my heart to get to the point to realize, holy smokes, I'm in a church that there's no other word to describe this, Hmm. that what I'm seeing going on, these are abuses. So we would just go to the one person, like the youth leader that did something. We'd go talk to that person. Hey, we don't feel good about this. Can we talk? And we did that at any time there was an issue that we saw something that was dealing with you, our own son, because we didn't realize it was going on with tons and tons of other kids and parents. Um, We didn't know. Uh, We did later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So we would, um, you know, go to the person that could be like one time when you like this one girl, some of this is in your book, but this girl you were interested in and, uh, this leader of the marriage and family ministry and teen ministry tells you no talking, no texting for eight months. And dad and I were like, huh, what are you doing? Uh, we were so proud of you for the way you handled it. You were 16 at that time and you had gone to the girl's dad and gotten permission. Like, Hey, I like your daughter. He felt great about it. Thumbs up. He's telling daddy and I, Oh, this is great. Thumbs up. You told dad and I about it. We're like, this is awesome. Great. Go for it. Awesome. You know, fantastic. We're so proud of you. You're so respectful of women and girls. And we feel great about your discernment. You're very wise. You're very respectful. You're very caring. Uh, we felt great about it. Um, but then here's this teen leader telling you guys without talking to us parents. Didn't yeah. say a word to us. You would just come home from devotional night and say, hey, so-and-so says no talking, no texting. She and I can't talk. And we were like, what? And so then dad would call the guy and say, hey, you know, I don't feel good about this. Austin already talked to her dad. He's already talked to us. We're so grateful that our son is being open with us. That's what we care about. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're great with this. And the guy says to dad, well, don't you trust me? <laughs> and dad, <laughs> he wasn't happy. I was there and he's on the phone. He said, don't you trust me? I'm his father. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? You don't, you know, there was just all this overstepping, you know, there was a time where, uh, there was one one woman who was one of the teen leaders, and she had sent you this text, and you came out into the living room. You were 16 at that time. She sent you this text, and you hold up your phone to me, and you said, I don't know what to do with this. And I read your phone, and it is from this youth ministry leader. Mm-hmm. And she says, it said, stop talking to your parents about this. Just talk to me directly. Yeah. So what I do, got on the phone. I get on the phone and I call her because I'm like, hey, we don't feel good about this. Um, One of our goals since Austin was young was we hoped to create a space in our home where he felt safe to come to us and talk to us about things. This is our dream that he feels safe to talk to us about what's going on in his life and the things he's feeling, the things that he's afraid of, the things that he, you know, all of it. And So I was like, please don't, don't be telling my son not to talk to his parents. We are not okay with that, you know, (laughs) but, and then there'd be other, you know, so these are all the one-on-one things. There was one actually with this same teen leader, um, you know, some of your friends, you had come home one day from lunch uh, with a bunch of friends and, and you, you said, mom, tell, tell my mom what you just told me. And, And a couple of your friends tell me this story of how. Some parents had decided you, their parent, their mom had decided you, they, they shouldn't be allowed to go on group dates that you were setting up right. because she had heard that you had crossed boundaries with a girl. Yeah. And I was like, what? And these boys explain, I said, I go, okay, I'm an older generation than you. So maybe this means something different to your generation than it does to mine. Nope. When you hear the term cross boundaries, what does it mean to you boys? You know, these are high school boys. They yeah. both said, well, definitely making out, but at at least that, but I don't know, sex or, and I said, yeah, okay. Well, that's what I think, you know, forcing yourself on someone doing something sexually inappropriate to someone without their consent, um, anything like that, you know? 
And so, of course, one more time, I call her directly. And at first, she actually admitted, yeah, that she did say that. She is the one. And she had started a rumor. It kind of spread. Turns out all these teens and some parents had heard Austin cross boundaries. And here you were, this kid that was so respectful of girls, never had even held hands with a girl, you know? You were so respectful. I was so proud of who you were with women. And... So she admits Thanks, that, yeah, she Mom. did. No, she, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but she admits that she did, you know, say that you crossed boundaries. But then she said, I specifically, she was so firm in her voice, you know, I specifically told him not to ask that girl on a date, and he did it anyway. And then yeah. she said, He completely disrespected me. This is word for word. Yeah. And I was writing it down as she was talking. <laughs> and I was like, Wow, because I wanted to make sure when my husband and I went over the conversation, we could just you're on, when you're on the podcast this. five years later, you want to remember it word for word. <laughs> so. so it was just mind blowing. And like, and I'm telling her, look, first of all, advice is just advice and someone can follow it or not follow it. Yeah. Uh, but my son, I said, the full story is he went to way too many people because one teen leader said, oh, you should ask this person, this person, this person. There were 12 yeah. of them. I got quite and a bit of advice know. from many different yeah. people. <laughs> There's a lesson learned. Yes. And you had gone to all 12, of, you know, including her dad and your mom and dad and this other teen leader and then a bunch of the other teen leaders. Crazy. And you ask them all their advice on this. It turns out. 11 of these people out of 12 give you this thumbs up. And again, that shouldn't matter. You don't need a thumbs up from all these 11 people, but that's how this happened. They all felt great about it. Thumbs up, except this advice. It's advice. It's just advice. And you would never do it that way. If you had it all to do over again, obviously, well, we wouldn't even be in that church, but so she finds out in this phone call when I tell her that the girl's dad, Robbie and I, and so there's 11 people saying, oh, thumbs up. This is fantastic. We love it. That's great. You guys like each other. She was the only one who said, don't ask that girl on a date. Yeah. So then she just completely changed her story. It turned into, I'm not going to get into that whole story, but a big mountain of lies, even up until we left, big mountain of lies. And so, and I do believe that if I want to add, you know, the compassion aspect of that, I believe that type of church culture where people are so pressured, jumping through hoops to try to be perfect. I believe that's where this kind of deceit comes from. I don't look at her like she's this evil person, but I... I think there were a lot of people we knew there who we loved and plenty in full-time leadership, which broke my heart to have to see this, who are quite deceitful. And I think that comes from that pressure to try to do everything perfectly and not feel like you can blow it and not feel like you can make a mistake and you're still going to be loved for who you are. You are good enough. And so I believe that a lot of the deceit that we experienced there with people who were in leadership there had to do with that. Um, I really don't, you know, I mean, I can say I don't fault them. I I, I think it's really sad that a lot of their deceit wound up being about children and teenagers and young adults. But on the other hand, I'm like, wow, I think that comes with that type of uh, fear-based religiosity type of community. So those are some examples that I would say, wow, we went straight to the person because we didn't realize that this was a paradigm issue and that this was happening across the board. 
and that it was very common for young people and their parents to have experienced these types of things in that church. We didn't know it. So we just tried to deal with it one-on-one. Yeah. I think it's a big, you were talking a little bit about that dynamic between wanting to foster a relationship with me that I was open and willing to talk to you guys about stuff. Mm -hmm. And I really was. And I know there were many people, you know, growing up who, who my, my friends who, who didn't have that kind of relationship. Mm. Not many teens are, are as close as I think we were and are. So for us, that, I think that was a definite positive that helped, like, was a tool to utilize in being able to, like, if I was not comfortable being open with you guys on a page-to-page basis of what was happening in my life, you would have no idea of what was right. going on. And vice versa, that probably made things a lot more difficult for more systemic things that our church was, that we were seemingly, that was seemingly getting in the way of, it felt like. Yeah, I would agree. And that was always something we really appreciated that you were so open and just vulnerable with us. And like, I remember um, in your book, you talk about the truth or dare game that happened. And when that truth or dare game happened, you came home and came to me and told me about it. It wasn't a secret. You told me you had played this truth or dare game. You didn't feel great about it because you thought, ah, these are my church friends. I've never played truth or dare before. How bad can it be with church friends? Da, da, da. Yeah. And, and then it turned out they were doing dares on things that you weren't comfortable with. And you were sharing how the first round that went around, here yours was, your friend dared you to kiss this girl that you kind of had a crush on you. Well, both of you were kind of like little crushy with each other. Yeah. And he dared you to kiss her on the cheek. And then you did kiss her on the cheek. And you were telling me about it. And you said, yeah, I, I didn't really want to do that that way. And, but I had that curiosity a little bit, which is normal and natural. Yeah. And so you were sharing about it. And then you said, you know, you, you wanted to step out of the game after that. I think I'm going to step out. Yeah. And But you were telling me about the story. And our conversation wasn't about how dare you play truth or dare? How dare you kiss a girl on the cheek? It wasn't, that wasn't our dialogue. Our dialogue was, okay, wow, Austin, I remember thanking you. I said, thank you for telling me about this. I really appreciate you just sharing about what happened. And then I said, so what do you think it is in you if you didn't want to do that part? If you thought, eh, I don't really want to do the kiss on the cheek. So what is it that you did still? If you felt like your gut and your heart were like, eh, I don't want to do that, but you did. And let's talk about that because no matter what it is in life, you know, you want to go with your gut, go with your instincts, go with what you believe is right, whether someone else is, has the same belief or not for you, since you said it felt weird, I was like, okay, so if you didn't want to do it, then why do you think you said yes? And then you said, well, I wanted to keep my yes, yes. And it was the first round. And everybody had, you know, done their part of their truth or dare turn. And so you felt like you couldn't quit the game until yeah. at least after <laughs> committing, staying with your promise or whatever. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's not that you were so perfectly innocent. There was that curiosity about kissing her on the cheek as well, you know. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. You were 12. So you came home. You told us it. It was maybe a five or 10 minute conversation. And we were done with it. It was like, cool. Thanks for telling me. I appreciate you telling me that we had no idea that that next Friday at the youth devotional night that they told the whole group that you had crossed 
crossed these boundaries and made it sound like some horrible thing had happened. Yeah. We didn't even know till just last year when your best friend was out here and you guys are in a conversation. He yeah. was visiting and he says something about, wait, what? It was a kiss on the cheek because even he, they, they had made it sound like this huge thing. And it was like, well, you know, Austin is a good kid. And if, and if even Austin can do this terrible thing, then we need to start some rules. We yeah. need to separate the girls and boys and we need to have no texting and no talking with the girls and boys. And we, which you felt all these years, we didn't even know until last year you carried that burden yeah. because what we also didn't know is that when you went to camp shortly after that, mm -hmm. they talked about it at camp. They talked about it in discussion groups at camp. We didn't know until recently because you had forgotten about it. And then Lisi was a guest on your, on your podcast and she mentioned it and you had kind of blocked that out. So just a few weeks ago, we learned that they put you and Lisi up in front of the entire camp at youth camp. Yeah. And made you guys apologize for playing truth or dare. I mean, when I learned that a couple of weeks ago, I was so mad. I felt like I wanted to get on a plane back to California and, and land him. on the doorstep. Yeah, I, I did. I, went, I was like, oh, I want to kick him. For any listeners, she, every since my book has been written, since this podcast, we'll be talking about things. She'll go, man, it makes me just want to go kick him. I want to kick him. <laughs> yeah. So you can go and kick him. I, I want to yes. add here real quick. You touched on it a little bit, but just the fact that I did not know how little you guys knew about how that situation was handled until mm -hmm. I was writing my book. Yes. Yes. You had given me your first rough draft. You know, I mean, you weren't planning on writing a book. You weren't planning no. on doing a podcast. The, nope. I believe it is the spirit that led you to do this, but you were definitely led and you felt that pull that you needed to put your story out there in hopes of helping others and for other people to feel seen and heard in their stories. And we didn't even know you were writing a book. No. And then when you said, hey, been writing this thing, can you read the first draft? I did not sleep that night. My stomach was in knots. And I was telling a couple of my girlfriends, I don't remember a time where an experience made me feel nauseous. And I was nauseous. I cried. I was deeply heartbroken. I couldn't believe that my son was placed in these shameful situations. And that for over 12 years now, he had carried this with him, this shame of feeling like he blew it by playing this truth or dare game. And that's why all of his friends at church now have these rules upon them no. of not talking to girls. And Austin believed it was all his fault. And it was so unreal when you and I talked, I remember that night we talked till three in the morning and I was sharing with you, oh my gosh, this part, this part. And you were like, wait, what? You didn't know? And so we get talking. You didn't know that I didn't know what they had done at the devotional and at camp yeah. by presenting you basically in front of everybody, like hanging you with a noose. Yeah. And you didn't know that I didn't know. And the more we talked, we realized that your 12-year-old self was already beating yourself up so much for playing this little truth or dare game, you already felt shame about it. And you assumed that they had told your parents that they were going to place you up there in front of everybody. Yeah. And you just assumed it was what you deserved. Yeah. And when you, gosh, makes me want to cry. When you told me that, I was so heartbroken that this little 12-year-old Austin, such a good person, was publicly shamed like that. 
And all this time you thought it was what you deserved and it is not what you deserve. And it is not how God views you as no. this shameful person who made a horrible decision and wasn't respecting a girl. It was heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And then we learned, uh, what, two weeks ago. We just learned two weeks ago. Someone who read your book, who was a youth leader back then, great guy, one of the fantastic youth leaders. Who was the leader of my cabin that year at camp. Yeah. And we didn't even know until, what, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. He let you know that he actually asked the main teen leaders at camp when he learned they were going to put you up there and shame you in front of everybody for playing truth or dare. He asked them. I believe him. He told us the story, and I believe him. He said he asked this main youth leader, the teen leader who led the marriage and family ministry, do the Knowles know about this? Did you ask the Knowles about this? Ask his parents, yeah. Yeah, did you ask his parents about this? And that guy said yes, that he had asked us. We, We gave the thumbs up. No, we never knew about it. Yeah. We never knew that that happened to you at camp. No. I mean, if they had asked us, hey, do you mind if we put your son up there and shame him for playing truth or dare, da-da-da, we would have said, sorry, he's not coming to camp. It's not happening. (laughs) And they would have never said, obviously, can you go up there and shame him? They would say, can we talk about this and bring them up and, and, you know, discuss it probably. Yes. Yes. They would have said it a different way for sure. But uh, yeah, it was really, really heartbreaking. There were some parts of your book that were just... Uh, you know, and then I felt so responsible and so heavy hearted that you had been through these things and, you know, wishing we had left sooner Yeah. and wishing that you had not been squashed like that and, you know, demoralized on numerous occasions. Yeah. And this is maybe a good transition to this next part. So the chapter, chapter 13, a final mm-hmm. stand, which is what this, chap- this episode is based off of. It starts mm-hmm. out with a sentence, I didn't write it down, but it's basically saying how there is most often times a period of time before you've resolved to leave an unhealthy situation that you first try to bring about change. Mm-hmm. And obviously you've set up the foundation here of you becoming aware through me and my experiences of really a lot of the unhealthy, toxic, abusive stuff that was happening. and. You spent a lot of time, first off, getting more of a consensus of figuring out how widespread these issues were apart from just me in Mm. terms of my peers and also different ages and different, you know, classes per se of of people in our church membership. And then really trying to figure out ways to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I want you just to talk about this whole thing. So can you take us through the time period where you first sought to try and help our church? and then explain the progression from wanting to help bring change to realizing that you need to leave? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, during those high school years when we were, you know, continually going directly to whichever youth leader or teen leader or whatever who had done these things that I'm mentioning here, these types of things with crossing, like way over crossing what they <laughs> should be doing. Yeah. Uh, it's up to the parents, you know, and they were not respecting that. But... What happened is when you got older and we 
were asked to facilitate this group, the Home from College for the Summer group, which were all, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds who were in college, and they would leave for college. And in the summer, they would come home to, you know, their local church community that they were part of. I knew almost every one of them since they were babies, incredible young people that I really respected. They were home from the summer, and they would meet at our house every week. And we were so excited to have them because these are kids that I watched grow up. They were your friends, and they yeah. um, many of them were your friends. Some of them you didn't know as well. And they would come to our house, and we would just talk about spiritual things. We'd have these great talks about the Holy Spirit. And near the beginning, I remember this first night, we were out on our back patio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had already been... It was pretty exhausting dealing with this one particular teen leader that was, you know, quite dishonest and who had done a lot of the abusive, spiritually abusive things in regards to you particularly that we had been speaking up about. I think there were several different leaders around that time around the time time I graduated high school and into my, you know, freshman year. Yeah. And, and granted, there were also a few really good ones. Yeah. You know, we had one that was just incredible and and loved, loved you so much and loved the kids so much. And, you know, he was just here visiting recently. So it's not like they were all bad. Yeah. And, and I, I would even say that- real quick, that point of he loved us so much. I think the majority of them, if not all of them, truly did love us. Yes. Yes. I would say that, too, that uh, most of them, if not all of them, loved the kids. And then, unfortunately, too many of them had this need to control Yes. and and try to run things and try to override the parents. Um, and that was really damaging to the entire youth ministry and to the faith of these young people. But what happened in the summer with this college group, I remember this first night, we're out on our back patio around this big long table and we'd served them dinner and whatnot and we're all talking and we just asked them, we said, hey, why don't we go around the table and we'd love to hear, you know, one was from University of Hawaii, one is UC San Diego, one is Pittsburgh. They're all coming home from all these different places of college. And it was all boys there that night, young men. And we ran around the table and we just said, you know, we'd love to hear, you know, something that was really great, beneficial, exciting, uh, favorite thing this year at college. Just general, and, like, and, oh, how was your, how was your year? Like yeah. you know, more lighthearted, just icebreaker stuff. Really. Exactly. How was it? And yeah. if there was anything that was tough being yeah. away from home or at your college, you know? And so they go around the table and you were way on the other side of the tables. So you were one of the second to the last person to share. So it was a whole bunch of these young men before you. Mm-hmm. And I was mind blown because one after another, their stories not only matched the experiences that we had dealt with, with people overstepping and being controlling, fear-based, legalistic with you, we were hearing these stories all around the table. And I'm looking at dad across the table as each young man is sharing and I'm looking at him and he would look at me because we were like, what on earth? This matches up. This is not. Yeah. We're like, this is not an isolated thing. And I remember one of the boys saying how, you know, he's really hoping that he meets a girl that's not from our church. He wants a girl completely outside of our church because the scrutiny is too much and he just can't meet up to the scrutiny. This is a great kid. Great young man. I, I love him. So much integrity. And I'm hearing that and I'm like, wow, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. 
one after another. They're sharing this. And we're learning that, um, you know, even their friends that are girls who they've grown up with their whole life that they're not interested in. One of them, in fact, at UCSD, this guy and this girl that we knew down there, we've known them since the girl, since she was born. And now they're what, 20 years old, I think in college and how they make sure that they don't post anything on their Instagram where they're together hanging out because they don't want to deal with the judgment and drama and have the leaders from our church calling them in for a meeting as to why they're spending so much time together. Looks like from social media, they're spending time together. Like this is the kind of stuff they were sharing. And we knew we had dealt with that with you and and the teen ministry, because when you were a senior, when they were saying no talking, no texting one time, you and your friend, this girl, you guys are sending messages to each other on social media. Then we call you in on a Friday and say, hey, we, we see what you're doing. And they tell you that you're sneaky. You came home and told us. Of course, Daddy called them after this. Oh, wow. I forgot about this. Yeah. This isn't they in my say, book. They say, yeah. yeah, it's not in your book. But they say, oh, you know, we told, we told the youth ministry, the teen ministry, these are the high school students, no mm-hmm. talking, no texting to any one of the opposite sex. We saw you two on social media. It, they, they presented it like, don't think you're getting away with this. Don't think we don't see it. And they used the word sneaky. Yeah, And how sneaky it was of you to comment on each other's social media posts. Mind blown. Like what? And dad called about that, but turned out, oh, this is a common thing. So these college kids are sharing their stories. I remember one of them sharing the leader had called him up and said he noticed that the hug that he gave this girl... Oh my gosh, yeah. Not enough of a side hug. That was a little bit of a front hug, a forward facing hug. And this young man, who is extremely intelligent, wonderful young guy that I respect, he said, Well, you know, all due respect. He tells us the story. He said, All due respect. I know myself. I think I know myself pretty well, and I know when I'm attracted to somebody and if I'm hugging them in some inappropriate way. And and I'm not. And the thing is, inappropriate way is a front hug in an inappropriate way to I hug know. somebody. Yeah, exactly. The whole thing is kind of sickening. Like it's all over a side hug and the yes. angle of degree. Yes. Like, are you kidding me? Yes. Inappropriate would be without your shirt. Like, no shirts. Like, <laughs> like no, wait, come on. It's like you grabbed your private parts or something. Like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Yeah. So, so he says, I know myself pretty well. And, you know, I trust myself. I trust my decisions and I'm not doing anything. And the leader then said to him, oh, because he said it was worldly, quote unquote, it was a worldly hug. And this guy says, uh, you know, I trust myself, blah, blah, blah. And then this leader says to him, oh, well, then you're not only worldly, you're arrogant. Yeah. He said you're worldly and arrogant. What? One of these young men, he had a situation a little bit after that, actually, where there was a girl at his college that he was... Uh, you know, interested in, he really liked her, and he he would actually tell dad about it. A couple of those boys would, would talk to dad about girls they were interested in and get input from him um, because they knew that dad wasn't going to be this dictator rules guy that was going to squash them, and he would really hear them and hear their experience and their feelings. And And this boy had, you know, this girl, he was interested in his school, and when he came home for the summer, or it could have been spring break, I'm not sure. I think it was, it might have been spring break. But he comes home from college. Now he's, I think, 20 years old, 20 or 21. He might have been 21. And one of his previous youth leaders, who's at our church, basically steps in 
thinks he shouldn't be interested in this girl, asks this young man for his phone. And you know this story. You know this this guy. Again, wonderful, respectful, fantastic young man. Gives his phone to this teen leader. And this guy, this man, this teen leader, typed on this college student's phone to this girl that he basically can't see her anymore and can't talk to her anymore. And it's not, it's not wise. And presses send. Unreal. To do this to a young man, he had to go back to campus after that and see this girl there who's received a text from him that he didn't write and send. And this felt terrible for him because he felt like this big cruel guy where all of a sudden this girl is receiving this out of the blue text from him about I can't talk to you. It's not wise. How's she viewing that herself? How's she viewing herself getting this vague, weird message that this guy didn't even send himself? These overstepping things that were really concerning to us. And someone could hear these stories and say, well, Robin, you're saying this secondhand. Well, I believe them. Yes. We heard these stories. So many of these stories were parallel. You could practically just insert a different name, and it was the same story, the same stories over and over. Yeah. And I believe them. And it's one of those things where anyone listening who has experienced it will believe them immediately, too, not even knowing them, because yeah. you understand that atmosphere. Yeah. So what happened then is uh, we then have the next meeting with these college kids. It's every week, every two weeks? It was every week, I think, or every other week. Well, by the next one, there's more there because they have now gotten out. Like the kids, the ones who got out of their colleges, uh, finished the school year sooner, were there that first time. Now the next time, it wasn't just the guys the next time. Now all the girls in the group were done at their colleges as well. It's just how Everyone it worked was out. Back the, home. Yeah. The first time it was just the guys for whatever reason. And this time, same thing. We go around the room, go around the circle, asking everybody how they're doing and how was their school year. And, you know, one of them says, well, actually what's been really hard is being home. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells because I'm trying to figure out what the rules are here at our church. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what the rules are. It seems like some of the rules have changed and I'm just walking on eggshells. And I was just like, wow, you should be coming home. In my mind, I'm thinking, you should be coming home, feeling welcome, feeling to, like this to is rest. home. Yeah, rest and feel like, wow, I'm with my people who have known me since I was a baby. Let me just be my authentic self and just let my hair down. Instead, yeah. she's talking about walking on eggshells and trying to figure out the rules so she doesn't misstep. And this is wild to me because saying I feel like I'm walking on eggshells trying to figure out the rules here to a church that you're newer to is still a red flag in a way. You're trying to figure out totally. like, what, what's the you know different dynamic here. This is a church that she was born into yep. and lived her entire life there. So 20 yep. years and yep. she's figuring out, trying to figure out since I've been gone, you know, the, the several months I've been away at school since last summer, what yeah. has changed? What's the atmosphere? I need to be very careful until I figure out what the dynamic what is here, so, like, so, I, so I can, what the new hoops are, so I can know to how to navigate them right. Yeah. And feeling that anxiety. She was yes. anxious about it. And, and I remember that night going around the room and different people are sharing and, 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 and dad said, Hey, raise your hand. If, if you avoid putting photos on your social media, when you're hanging out with a guy from this group or a girl from this group, that's one of your friends, all the hands go up. And we were like, holy crud, this is sick. Like, this is not okay. 
These are their friends. They've known since they were babies, and they don't feel like they can post pictures of them on social media because of the opposite sex, and they don't want to be talked to about it. Yeah. And this was the night. When the question that you asked me about what was the point for me that made me start speaking up and try to help change things, we go around the room and one particular young woman that I love dearly, I have known her since birth, she shares a story that's pretty heartbreaking to me. And it's very clear in the stories that everyone is sharing that they feel shamed, uh, minimized, oppressed, um, viewed as less than. Viewed as not good enough. Viewed at all the things that are not God. Yeah. And she shares this story that I'm not going to share because it's her private story. And I'm sitting there listening to her and I said, oh my gosh, this is, this blows my mind. You got to tell somebody the story. Did you go back and tell these teen leaders this story? It was from her teen leaders there. Now she's at college, but she's home for the summer. And she said, oh yeah, I already did. And I said, well, tell them again. She said, I did. And so did my mom. And I was like, oh, my gosh, well, you got to tell somebody else because this is important. And I said, I had no idea things like this were happening here. And I said, what you have to say is so important. People from my generation who've been in the church a long time, we can learn from these experiences you guys are talking about. Your story is something we can learn from. We need to change things. And she said, oh, they don't take us seriously, meaning the leaders that I told her, "Go, go tell them this. And I said, of course they'll take you seriously. This story is unreal. Of course they're going to take you seriously. And she said, oh, no, no, we've tried. We've already talked. We've already brought it up more than once. They don't take us seriously. So then I say, look, guys, I'm telling them all, like, this is, this is powerful, your stories. We can learn from you and change some things. And then two of the young men who are, you know, they're, they were in their 20s at the time, they both said, no, we're not, they don't take us seriously. They said the same thing. And then one of them says, she's right. Pointing to the other girl. She's right. They don't take us seriously. And then these two young guys, they say, that's why we're so glad you're speaking up. Hmm. And I'm like, what on earth? So that night I went to bed. I woke up at 5 a.m. in tears. And it turned out dad was next to me also not being able to sleep. And he was emotional. And I got on my knees next to my bed and I prayed. And I was like, this is not okay. I got to talk to somebody. I am going to advocate for these young people. I just don't know who to talk to because they're already saying they've talked to this person, this person, this person, this person. It went nowhere. And when I asked them what happened, they all said the same adjectives. I felt unheard, squashed, invalidated, discredited. Those were the words they used, oppressed, silenced. They all were using the same adjectives about speaking up. So some names came to mind right then that I believe. I know some people say that's the, your gut instinct. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. For me, I believe that's the Holy Spirit. And I went, set up a meeting that morning, texted both of these two leaders for the church that I really didn't know that well. One of them I really didn't know. But that's what came up. And so I set up the meeting and that started conversations, meetings, anonymous surveys, community meetings from 2017 to 2019, every week, anywhere from one to four meetings in a week. It was exhausting, but 
at the beginning, I really thought, wow, we're going to make some changes here. And when I met with the first two, I presented it as, you know, here's what I'm hearing from these college students about their experiences growing up in our church. And I said, clearly, we've done some things right. Clearly, we've done some things well here. But clearly, we've done a lot of things not well, not right. We as a community somehow got here. And we as a community have got to change this. And then I said, these young people, what, what I would love is for young people who grew up in this church to be able to leave here, go to college, go off on their life and be able to say, wow, here, let me tell you about my spiritual life. Here's my connection with God or the Holy Spirit or blah, blah, blah. And I'm here. I got here with the support of my church and my youth ministry. Right. And I said, we don't want them to have to say, I got here despite my church right. and my youth ministry. Mm-hmm. And I believe they are currently having to say despite. And many of them are just saying, forget it. I don't want anything to do with God. I've tried yeah. God. I don't want anything to do with him because this is not attractive to me. And it was a very exciting meeting because this one leader, he even said, oh, I'm so glad you came to us. If people don't come to us directly, how do we ever change these things? I felt so excited. You know, and someone who used to be a a pastor there had said to me, you know, wow, you're making more headway than anybody's ever made with this conversation. And I was like, really? By the end of it, I was like, well, I don't feel like I made that much headway. So the meeting started. A lot of meetings, um, a lot of talks. It would usually be just me with the paid staff leaders and then Robbie, your dad, and he joined in pretty quickly in there because he felt the same way that I did. Uh, really felt like, hey, you know, we got here somehow and we, we can change this. We tried to be a we, like really be a community in changing this. Yeah. Um, at one point, we even had uh, one of the elder, there's, there was an elder couple there, and he actually said, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it in a written email, but yeah. he said he would like us to stop using the word we because it implies that the church has made mistakes. That's a quote. And we were like, wow, you know, we could just say you, all of you leaders and you elders, and you, we could say you have blown it here. Look at all these people speaking up. But we were trying to be a team. Like, come on, we've all been here a long time. Uh, You know, Robbie, your dad was there for 30 years and I was there for almost that same length of time, 28 years. So we felt like, wow, we can be part of this and really help to make this more healthy. And I didn't hold anything back. I didn't edit. I would tell them, you know, like, look, I'm really realizing this is the whole paradigm here. This is a paradigm issue. This is not a one person issue, a one teen leader issue, a one, you know, for me, it wasn't about any one specific teen leader. It was a paradigm issue. Mm-hmm. that was allowing this to continue. And now I was led to believe that this was pretty much the first they'd heard of this and they were just so glad I was speaking up. I didn't know at the time that people had been speaking up about this for 10 to 15 years. Same issues, yeah. same subjects, same abuses, same behaviors, same mistreatment of the young people. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that had been going on. You were my first you know, you were my oldest child. So this is the first experience I had had with it. Mm-hmm. And they did tell me they acted like they'd never heard it before. And they were just so glad I was coming to them. So I really felt like, wow, we're going to make some great changes here and make this healthy. We did uh, meetings. It would just be me with, you know, one, two, three staff couples and the elders. Sometimes the elders would be there, not always. Um, 
one pastor that was a great guy and he really, you know, he agreed and he really was grateful. And he's like, I'm so glad you're speaking up. I've been speaking up about these same issues for two years and I've just been getting nowhere with it. And I'm really grateful that you're speaking up. And so I was like, wow, this is incredible. We're really, we're going to make some headway and make this healthy for these young people, you know? And, um, and he was great. He told me later on, he apologized to me one time. Um, it's pretty sad, but I had just left the church actually. And he, apologized to me. He ran into me somewhere and he apologized to me. He said, I really want to apologize to you for believing everything they said about you in the leaders meetings. <laughs> and I was like, huh? He thought I knew. You could tell he thought I knew. And the small leaders meetings with those paid staff members and elders in him. And I thought, wow, that's really sad because I thought we were working as a team to yeah. try to help change things and make it more healthy. And he said he felt really bad for believing the the very negative and horrible things they were saying about me and that now that he had gotten to know me himself, he really saw that, you know, that's not who you are. And so I was like, hmm, wow, good thing I left that church. Yeah. You but, didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know. Yeah. But that, you know, we now know that most people who speak up there, that's what happens. They are ostracized and squashed and discredited and they mark them for speaking up. Yeah. They're suddenly prideful, arrogant and being yeah. led astray. Yes. They are just bitter, critical people. Choosing the world. Yes, exactly. So those meetings went on for from 2017 to 2019. Uh, by the end of it, I am telling you, I was exhausted and I, it was really affecting my health. Which after should a not while. be the case in the no, first place. It should not. It was one to four meetings a week with these pastors. And again, you know, dad and I were the only people in the meetings who were not on the staff. And we decided we would do an anonymous survey so that they could really give their input. We were going to do a regular survey, and then the main, uh, the lead pastor there, he's, he's still the lead pastor there. You know, we decided, yeah, it's going to need to be anonymous because people are so afraid to speak up. Yeah. Uh, they feel like they've told their stories before. They've tried, and they weren't heard, or they were discredited or minimized. So they're afraid to speak up again. You know, and I was basically saying, we want to hear their real stories and their real heart and they're afraid now. So we decided on this anonymous survey and came up with the questions. That lead pastor and I, we worked on the questions and I was grateful. You know, we put questions on there. You know, have you ever experienced uh, controlling, legalistic leadership in our church, fear-based religiosity, all that? Did you speak up about what were experiences? What actually happened? They could share that. Did you speak up about it? Did you go to the person? Did you go? Yes, yes, yes. You know, they, they can answer that. Um, if you did, how, what was the response? And did you feel heard? Mm -hmm. You know, what kinds of things, what suggestions do you have that you think we could change in the church uh, to, to do better, to make it less that way? You know, it was, it was great. And so we were getting ready to send this survey out. And we're in these meetings. And sometimes it would just be that lead pastor and his wife. And it, it became very, very challenging because probably from fear, uh, being very afraid of what, pe what might people say in these surveys, I don't know. But his wife, on four different occasions, she demanded that I give her the anonymous names. Man. Dude. I was the only person who knew the names of the people that the survey was going to. I'm still the only person. I didn't even share it with my husband because the promise was this is going to be anonymous. Yeah. And we really kept emphasizing that to people that it was going to be anonymous. There were people who were so scared to do this survey and they would call me and say, I really want to fill this out. I have things I want to share. I have so much on my heart. This and this happened to my daughter or this happened to my son. 
I'm so scared that this is not really anonymous and that there's going to be backlash to me or backlash to my kids, which, wow, Mm. isn't that heartbreaking? Yeah. That's heartbreaking. But they were really afraid that it wasn't really going to be anonymous. They didn't trust that the leaders were going to have this anonymous survey. And I would tell them, no, I promise you, it's anonymous. And in fact, a couple people, I even said, you can use my email. Put my email address on it. Because I thought, then I would tell them, you know, I've already had opportunity to share my thoughts on this and share my whole perspective. I've already shared my concerns. Because they really, there were plenty that had doubts that this was actually anonymous, which again is very sad. They didn't fully trust the church leaders. And sadly, this um, lead pastor's wife, uh, the lead women's ministry leader, Uh, She did request that I give her the anonymous names. And I told her the first time, I can't do that. We all promise them, you guys, the staff, you guys and myself, we promise them that this survey is anonymous. Yeah. And I said, it would go against my conscience to tell you the names of the people doing this survey. This turned into a thing where three times verbally she demanded I give her the anonymous names, and one time in an email that her husband was also on. One time, uh, dad was dad and I were in a meeting with them, and she again asked for the anonymous names, and I told her I, I cannot do that. That would feel out of integrity for me. And she said, just give me the names. I'll meet with them one-on-one. That's what I do. Oh, my God. That's a quote. That's word for word. I'll meet with them one-on-one. That's what I do. Yeah, I bet it is. And dad was like, we don't necessarily want them to meet with you one-on-one. We don't want you to talk them out of their truth. Yep. They don't need to be talked out of their truth, which is what has been happening. And, you know, there's also that fear. I think they didn't want people to realize they weren't alone. Yeah. God is giving Uh them insight, clarity, discernment, these people. And that is scary to a leader who wants control. And I view that as when a leader wants and needs that much control, that clearly comes from fear, sometimes narcissism. And so I go, wow, the Holy Spirit wasn't present. Mm -hmm. Because when the Holy Spirit is filling the space, there's just no need for for control. None. There's just no need. It doesn't even cross your mind. But when the Holy Spirit isn't present... There's so much room for that kind of fear. And when you're not truly connected to the Holy Spirit, I mean, what else can you do? You know, the way that they taught things, whether intentionally or not, presented God as a God where you got to jump through a lot of hoops in order to be accepted by God. So, of course, this leader is scared to death of these surveys. Of course, she's scared to death of people voicing the truth voicing what they are seeing, the discernment, voicing the concerns that they have. There was a meeting, that one, where she, you know, where dad was like, no, people don't need to be talked out of their truth. We don't need you meeting one-on-one with these people. Let's let them talk. Let's hear them. Uh, In one meeting, when she demanded that I give the anonymous names, she actually told me, that I'm not a team player Oh my god! because I would not give her these anonymous names. And I was like, look, I'm trying to be a team player. I'm trying to work on this with you to help change things in this youth ministry. 
And then another time, I was in a meeting with her and her husband, the lead pastor. And she, again, she wanted those anonymous names. And she actually said, you know, you've said you respect so-and-so, her husband. She said, you know, she basically said, this shows me that you don't respect us. God, the manipulation. she's asking me for these anonymous names repeatedly. And she's telling me, I will just meet with these people one-on-one. And I'm not doing it. I'm not following her demand. Finally, one time I said it in a meeting where she and her husband were there and the other staff pastors were there and the elders were there. And I brought it up in that meeting. And I told her in front of them how I felt about the fact that she had on four occasions demanded that I give her these anonymous names when the members have been told over and over they will be anonymous. And she got real snappy with me. And, you know, she said, I, I told you, you don't have to give me the names. She was very snappy. And I look back at that and go, she's afraid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's very afraid. I don't know all the history. She's very afraid of people sharing their truth. And now, oh, she's embarrassed because I said this in front of other people in a meeting. But I never did give her the anonymous names, obviously. She tried to stop the survey from going out. And I knew this survey needed to go out because these stories needed to be told. And they felt too scared, a lot of people, to bring up these stories again. And there was kind of a little battle going on. She wanted the anonymous names given. She didn't want the surveys going out. Her husband, thank God, did let the surveys go out. But this Thursday night, I was getting scared. I was actually praying, like, please, God, let these surveys go out so that these stories can be seen by them. The crazy thing is, I would say, look, there's many people feeling this way. We need to hear their stories. We need to come up with ideas to help change this and blah, blah, blah. And she said to me, Robin, this same pastor's wife, lead women's leader, whatever. She said, Robin, you are a very compassionate person. So I think it just feels like oh many God, people. Man. You keep saying many, many people. It feels like many people to you because you're compassionate. She said, I think there's really just a few. And it feels like many to you. That is what she said. So I'm sitting there that Thursday night just praying that this survey actually goes out because she was wanting to stop it from going out. And the survey went out. And I was so relieved. And it didn't go to the whole church. I thought, well, let's just send it to the church and let people give their opinions. They didn't want it sent to the whole church. So they let me choose who it was being sent to. And that was based on the fact that I knew a lot of these stories. I knew these young people. I knew these parents. And it only went to, I think, 81 people initially. I think that's how many it went to. And the surveys start flying in. I'm like, I hope people fill it out. I don't know if they're going to fill it out. These surveys are just flying in. And within 48 hours, the survey was going to be open for two weeks. So we told people, you've got time to pray over it. You know, decide what answers you want to put. Take your time. Think about what really matters to your heart, what you care about the most, and take your time. Within 48 hours, there were 59 surveys already back. And we only sent out, what, 81? And all of the answers are the same. Yes, I've experienced this. Yes, I spoke up. Yes, I did this. No, I didn't feel heard. I felt, and it was the same adjectives over and over. I felt minimized, squashed, silenced, discredited, marginalized. 
I mean, it was heartbreaking. And these parents are talking about their kids being ostracized after they spoke up. Their kids paid the price. They're talking about how they were viewed personally as a parent once they spoke up. Young people filled it out as well. Some teens, some people in college who had been in that youth ministry. Their stories were so powerful, like amazing opportunities to learn. And when I had met with this, the main staff leader, and we said we're going to do this anonymous survey, the goal was let's see how this survey turns out. And then if people feel comfortable, we can have a meeting. If they feel safe and they feel like they're going to be heard, we'll have a meeting face-to-face, which is really what you want (laughs) to be able to talk like that. But this first step needed to be anonymous. They were scared. So this survey was heartbreaking. And I remember when the survey started coming in, the first, there was, the first, some of the ones that came in that first day brought me to tears because I'm reading these stories and they're naming names. And I didn't know some of the names of who was causing what. I just knew there was some big issues. They're naming the same people over and over of things that happened to their children that were not, not okay. That were, that would absolutely be qualified as abuses. That crushed their spirits, crushed their faith, and for many of them, crushed their belief in God. Mm. And when these surveys were coming in, I was definitely brought to tears a few times. I remember my hands shaking the first day when a few of these surveys came in because I was like, oh my gosh, holy smokes, they're answering this. They're putting the full stories in here. They're really sharing this. And I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't know half of this stuff was going on. I knew there were stories of pain and damage and trauma, spiritual abuse. I didn't title it that yet then. That's what it was. Yeah. But I didn't know there was this much of it. And some of these people sharing stories were leaders in the church. Leaders in the church who felt like they could not go to their fellow leaders. And I was the only one who knew that because I was the only person who knew who was doing these surveys. To this day, my own husband has not read those surveys. I did not allow it because the promise was this is going to be anonymous. So I was just carrying that in my heart. And it was devastating. When you go down the first column where people say yes or no, if they've experienced this control, legalism, these abuses, yes, 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 yes. One person said no. And that person was one of the staff leaders. Oh my God. She wasn't even supposed to fill out that survey. Yeah. But she's the only person that said no. And in every column, no, I haven't experienced this. No, it hasn't happened. No. I'm like, what is she even doing filling this out? She was the only one of all those people that said she had not experienced this traumatic stuff and these spiritual abuses and the control and the legalism and the overstepping. And the crossing of boundaries repeatedly. So it was very heartbreaking. But the amazing thing at the time, what I thought was, oh my gosh, this is amazing, this is incredible, is that main staff leader, when he's seeing all these come in, he felt the same. Like, oh my gosh, we got to do something about this. Sadly, that one leader's wife, the one that was asking for the anonymous names, she shut the survey down after 48 hours. And it was supposed Mm -hmm. to be open for two weeks. And she shut it down and... That was very hard because I was hearing from a lot of people that Monday, some of them crying, literally crying. One mother was crying so hard that I couldn't understand her words. She was screeching. 
can you please get the survey open back up? I didn't get to fill it out. You said we had time to think about our answers. You said we had, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. But this, the, the woman leader who wanted the anonymous names, now they're, all the surveys are coming in. She's reading them, you know, and so she shut it down after 48 hours. So plenty of people uh, were pretty heartbroken. They didn't get to tell their stories. But the great thing is, is that the main staff leader guy, he said, we got to have a meeting. So right then, he calls a meeting for the next day. And how are we going to get a hold of people? You know, it only, I think only 60-something people even knew about the meeting. And almost all of them came. They were canceling Bible talks. They were canceling their commitments. They were canceling things that they needed to do because they wanted to be at this meeting. And still they were scared. And I'm having to tell people, no, he really wants to hear your story. He really wants to hear about this. Now, looking back, I get it. They had already experienced the squashing and the oppression that did come out of this meeting. But I didn't know that at the time. I was naive about it and thought, this is awesome. This is how you make change. You speak up. You advocate for people. You come up with a plan. You brainstorm and you work together as a team to make a change. That's what I thought we were doing. Yeah. So this meeting's going to happen, this community meeting. And again, only I think 60 or 61 people were notified about it. And um, 40-something of them showed up, I think. Um, and they didn't have notice. I mean, there was not time for them to even, you know, they had to cancel things. They canceled their group meetings. They canceled commitments that day because they really wanted to be at this meeting where they were going to get to share um, their stories. And, um, and many of them were like, I'm really scared, but I'm going to go. I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to listen. And what was amazing was almost everybody in that room wound up sharing by the end of this meeting. Uh, they did get their courage up. And the meeting was supposed to be an hour to an hour and a half long, I think. And um, that was how long the room was reserved for. And it wound up going for almost four hours yep. because there was yeah. a lot to be said. Um, but that morning uh, when I got to church, I, was, I used to man this, uh, this community service booth. Um, to handle, you know, the things we would do for outreach because that was something that I really cared about. So I handled the, you know, serving the homeless, um, you know, you know, whatever, community service stuff. So people knew where to find me is what I'm saying. I was at this tent, this booth that I kind of manned. So that morning, all these people start coming over to the booth to talk to me one by one. And one of them came over there and she was a longtime member of the church. She'd raised her kids there. And she told me that she had thrown up that morning. And she said she was so scared about this meeting and so afraid to share about her experiences and what her kids had been through. And she threw up. Wow. And I just really couldn't believe like, wow, this is really affecting people, you know? And she says to me that her oldest child, she had a handful of people in the teen program, but her oldest uh, when he had gone through that program, he really got uh, very shamed, very publicly shamed, very ostracized, very separated because the teen leaders wanted a lot of control over his dating decisions and who he liked and if he could date or not. And she and her husband had spoken up. And she said ever since they spoke up about these concerns and told the teen leaders they you know, didn't feel it was their place to make these decisions for their son. Ever since then, they had been definitely ostracized, um, really put aside. 
uh, they, they were, they no longer allowed them to lead a Bible talk, Bible discussion group, a life group. They basically separated them, isolated them in some ways. Yeah. Um, they didn't want them talking to people and they didn't want them leading groups. And so here she was feeling the importance still to try to help change this and to speak up so that other youth would not go through this. And, um, her son didn't even go to the church anymore because of how he was treated during that. But she threw up. And then she leaves and another woman comes over to the booth where I was working. And she tells me that she's been nauseous all morning. She'd been in the church, this one, maybe six, seven years. And she also had a handful, actually, of young people, teens and in their 20s now. And she shares how she's been nauseous all morning. She's very scared. And so she's decided not to go to the community meeting. And I told her, I said, that's fine. You know, whatever you decide. And I said, but just know if you decide to go, you don't have to talk. You don't have to share your stories. You don't have to share your concerns if you just want to listen. And so I tell her, so-and-so, the lead pastor guy, I said, you know, he really wants to hear people's stories. You're not going to get shamed and squashed in there. And so she said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm not going to talk, but I'm going to go. And she did go. And the one who threw up that morning, she did go as well. She went. And then another woman came who had been in the church. Gosh, she's still there. She's been there, I don't know, close to 30 years. She and her husband and her family. And she came. She had been very excited about these conversations happening and that progress might happen and stories might help to make change with this legalism and this control and all of this cultish behavior. And she's great, great gal. I love her. I love her kids. Uh, they're adults now. But anyway, so she, she comes to the tent, this person who was so excited about being able to voice all of this, and she says she's not going to the meeting. Her husband didn't feel good about her going to the meeting. And she said it kind of caused an argument the night before. And, you know, she shared, you know, her husband, you know, had not been allowed on stage for close to 10 years. And now he was basically in the favor, in, in good favor, in good standing with um, one of these particular leaders who was now allowing him to be on stage more. Mm. And so he didn't want to jeopardize that. And they definitely had experiences. This is definitely one of their kids... I just have heart heartbreak for the way that that person was treated in that teen ministry. So she was a bit heartbroken herself that she wasn't going to be going to this meeting, and she didn't go. And uh, actually later she was very sad that she didn't go. Yeah. Because um, it turned out that almost every young person that went to that meeting, because some of the teens went, people in their 20s who could share their experiences, a lot of parents... But it was beautiful to see almost every young person in that room, their parents were there as well. Their parents stood behind them. Their parents had their backs. And when they shared their stories and their experiences, their parents were right there with them. And their parents shared their stories and experiences as well. So going into that, this meeting was, at first, the first couple people that shared that um, lead pastor, um, I was like, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well. Because he did minimize the first couple people. You know, and that could be a defense mechanism. I don't know. But he did minimize them. And he said, well, you know, these teen leaders work for free. I mean, yeah. anybody who will be with my kids on a Friday night for free, I mean, I'm grateful uh, for that. No. 
And when he said that, I thought, oh my gosh, this isn't going to be good. And I thought, you know, just because someone's willing to be with kids and teens for free doesn't mean they're the healthiest person to be with your child. In fact, there are so many predators who volunteer to be camp counselors and scout leaders and whatever else, and they're more than glad to do it for free. You know, so you don't go by someone's willing to, to do it for free, so hey, you shouldn't be complaining. They're doing this for free, which we actually did hear that a handful of times uh, during those two years we were speaking up. There'd be leaders who would say, well, you know, they're doing this for free. We just need to be grateful. Uh, no, I'm not having my kids around anybody, whether they're paid or free, if they are abusive or damaging <laughs> to my children. No, but that was something that they said a lot there, and it would they try to use that to put people in their place and tell them, basically, you need to stop complaining. Because that was a thing they used there a lot. They'd say, you're just being bitter, critical, and a complainer. Those were yep. the terms they used a lot. Uh, which is really sad because if you're, if when people bring up concerns, your, your go-to is, well, they're just bitter. They're just critical. That's a complainer. You really cheat yourself of the opportunity to grow. You miss this opportunity to change and grow. If you're going to categorize everything as just, oh, those are just the bitter people. Well, you have a problem when it's most of your church. Are all of those people just bitter people? So this meeting started off that way. And then by, I think, the third person that shared, I saw this leader change. His heart changed. He knew what he was hearing was significant. And I really appreciated that. And he was hearing the stories. And people were sharing. And there were a lot of tears. And I mean, one mom was sharing, you know, just the divide it caused between her and her daughter because she kept going to the church even after her daughter was treated very, very badly mm. and how they're trying to mend that now. Um, parents shared about all sorts of things that had happened to their young people and young people shared about how they felt, how it felt to them to not be trusted, yeah. to be constantly feeling accused uh, a lot of these young men felt like they were viewed as predators. They were yeah. treated as mm -hmm. if they were predators around young women. And I, like I said before, oh, these are the kind of guys yep. that a mother would want their daughter with. They were so respectful yeah. mm -hmm. of girls and women and just had so much integrity and character. But they felt like they were untrustworthy predators because of how their church leaders, especially their team leaders, treated them. Um, I mean, people talked about all different kinds of things in the community meeting. Um, you know, their their kids not being allowed to come anymore because they, they were spending too much time with their sports activities and that meant they were not putting the kingdom first, quote unquote, yeah. like terrible things like that. Like, no, offer them God. Tell them, come when you want to. You are welcome here. Anybody's welcome here, you know? But And, and there were plenty of parents in surveys or in the community meeting talking about how, for example, their, their girls... The teen leaders would tell them, tell their daughter, you have too many friends who are boys. Too yep. many of your buddies are boys. And yep. we want you to build your relationships with the girls more. And if they didn't appear to be connecting well enough with the friends that are girls and seem to be having these friendships with the boys, uh, one mom was even saying her daughter, two of them actually, uh, the daughters were not allowed to come to teen devotional nights anymore because that was viewed as disrespect. You didn't obey us. You didn't obey our request for you to not have so many friends that are boys. So, you know, things like that that just crushed these kids because these were their friends since they were babies. And now they're not allowed to come because 
they have too many friends that are boys, you know. So the stories were heartbreaking and there were a lot of tears. And and at the end of the meeting, it turned out almost everybody raised their hand, even people who were like, I'm going to go, but I'm going to stay silent. Little by little, another hand would go up and another hand would go up and another hand would go up because they felt like they were being heard. So that was beautiful. And at the end of the meeting, this uh, staff pastor, you know, he held his hands in front of him like to show the motion of tiny, tiny, tiny. And he said, at the beginning of this meeting, I thought it was this. And he holds his hand in this small position, showing tiny. Now, after I've heard your stories, I know that it is this. And he opens his arms really wide. And I thought, this is incredible. He's seeing that this is a big deal and this is a big problem. And we're hearing these stories over and over. And almost every single person in the room shared. Of all the young people in the room, only, I think, two, maybe three, did not share. And two of them is because they put their name on their survey. Their survey was not anonymous. They said, I'm so-and-so. Here are my answers. Which was amazing and brave. Unfortunately, that shouldn't be have to be a brave thing. But in a controlling church like that, it takes courage because you know you're going to be ostracized. There's a good chance you're going to be um, squashed. So anyways, at the end of it, this uh, staff leader says, okay, we got to make some changes. And clearly, I need to talk to the team leaders. And I think we need to have a meeting once a month so that we can keep working on this. And everybody's feeling like, wow. This is incredible, finally. And some of these parents, again, you are my oldest. So this is the first time I've dealt with this. I hadn't seen it all before. There were many parents in that room who had one, two, three kids who were older than you. They've already seen this for years. They've already spoken up about these problems for years. Again, I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was bringing forth some new thing that we needed to fix. I didn't know they'd been hearing about it for a long, long time and just chose to do nothing. But now it was really becoming very clear. People were sharing in that meeting things they dealt with with their oldest and then their next oldest and then their current child in the teens, you know. And one woman, a friend of mine, you know, she raised her hand and she said, oh, I'd be glad to set up that meeting every month. I'll help coordinate it. People were kind. They were respectful. Yeah. They Mm -hmm. offered their suggestions and stories in a loving way. It did get really sad at times. They would share stories and it would bring tears. But people, there was no yelling. There was no, Mm -hmm. nothing horrendous. It was... Honest, authentic, transparent, very powerful, and very team-oriented, and no attacking. None of these parents attacked the teen leaders. None of them, they didn't even say the names of which teen leaders had done things. It was just such a beautiful team effort. So we're going to have these monthly meetings, and this one mom is going to set them up and all that. And we leave, and in fact, I went home, and this one guy and his wife were at our house, and he used to be on the paid staff there as a pastor, And I walk in the door and he's cheering and he's like, wow, he's like, you have made more headway with this than anyone I've ever seen. And he said, even, you know, he was just like, even the leaders are saying that they just couldn't believe all the headway made, you know. And I'm feeling like this is incredible. We're going to make changes. After that is when the survey got closed that night. Bam. Survey's not open anymore. Supposed to be open for two weeks. And then... Crickets. Nothing. Yep. You would have thought those leaders left that meeting and pushed delete in their brains. It was as if it didn't even happen. Yeah. The parents, 
never received a follow-up. The woman willing to set up the monthly meeting, never heard from that staff pastor about it again. Nobody heard a thing about the next steps and helping to fix this. And using the experiences and input of these parents who had experienced it to try to change it. Didn't happen. None of the meetings ever happened. None of it happened. And that was crushing to many of these parents who left there with hope that day. Many of the parents who were in that room no longer go to that church. And many of them had been there for 20 to, 20 to almost 30 years. But there was a room full of people willing to work together. And in the end, that wasn't received. It seemed like it was going to be, and it was a very exciting day. But um, I think the delete button got pushed. So after the big community meeting, there never was a circle back and never was a follow-up to all of those parents who came and shared their stories and offered to help, you know, sort of be a sounding board and come up with ideas to make it a healthier youth ministry. That just got dropped off the wayside, never happened. Meetings kept happening with the paid staff couples and oftentimes the elder couple and dad and I. We were the only members in the meetings talking about, you know, all the stuff going on there and, you know, going through all of these concerns that that dad and I were speaking up about. I remember being in one of these meetings after those surveys had come out, the anonymous surveys, and one of the lead pastors who he and his wife led the marriage and family ministry and the teen ministry, he was very upset that these surveys had gone out and we were basically giving consideration to these stories, that we were considering these stories of value. And he said, you know, he told us he was, he was upset about that. We should have just all come to him. <laughs> and he said, if you had come to me and his wife, he said, we would have told you. You know, these people, he said, I can tell you who every one of these anonymous surveys is. I know these Man, stories. Whatever. These are all bitter complainers. Wow. And he said a lot of these are single moms. What? Which was really odd to me. And I, I mean, I was raised primarily by a single mom. So I, I took offense to that. Yeah, what the heck does that uh, even mean? Single mom should heck? be lifted up for all that they're doing. And if anything in the church, we should be supporting them in any way we can, not putting them down because they're a single mom. But anyways, so he, um, he says all that. And he said, if you would have come to me, I would have told you that this is just like when a kindergartner comes home from school and they tell their parents a story of something wow. that happened at school that day. And the parent would get really upset about it. And then when the parent goes and talks to the teacher, they see that the child was completely oh gosh, off. Gosh, man. And completely inaccurate. And that's not the way it happened at all. And blah, blah. so he's telling us this. And that if we would have just come to him we would have seen and known that all of these stories were nonsense, basically. We're all made up, basically. And I just couldn't believe it. So he talked, said his whole spiel about how this was all a bunch of nonsense and the bitter complainers and, like, kindergartners, their stories are just off. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? And, I mean, I had known this guy, I don't know, almost 28 years at this point. And I said... When these college students first started meeting at my house and sharing these heartbreaking stories of things that had happened to them in this church, I found their stories to be so compelling and so powerful 
And I kept telling them, you have got to go tell the leaders about this. And they would say, I already tried. Well, then go tell someone else. I already tried. Well, then go tell the main leaders. I already did. And my parents did. And I said, they said that they were so glad that I was speaking up because they're not taken seriously. Yep. And so I'm still looking at this guy and the other pastors are sitting there and the elder couple. And I said, I couldn't believe that they viewed them themselves that way. And I was wondering, like, where did they get this belief system that they're not going to be taken seriously? They have something so valid to share that we can all learn from. And I kept telling them, of course, they're going to take you seriously. And I looked at him and I said, hearing what you just said and comparing them to kindergartners, which, by the way, even a kindergartner that comes home from school telling a story should be taken seriously and not treated as though they're nothing. (laughs) But I looked at him and I said, hearing you say that, now I know why they believe they're not taken seriously because they're not. Yeah. He said nothing. Yeah, I bet. The other staff pastors and leaders said nothing. Good. No one said anything. That was that. A little while after that, uh, his wife, uh, you know, we had to talk about this because what she did was she secretly and privately met with each woman in the Bible discussion group that my husband and I were leading. And she met with each woman to tell them they should leave leave our group, leave our Bible group. Oh my gosh, she was man. so upset that I was speaking up about these concerns. So instead of telling me, which I even talked to her one day, I said, "Is do we have anything else to talk about? She said, no, we're all good. We're all good. I feel good. I feel good yeah, about it. Whatever. That's what she said to me and left my house. And within 45 minutes of that, she contacted the first woman, actually. So she's contacting each of the women in my Bible discussion group, telling them that they should leave Robin's group. She's not a good leader. You should leave Robin's group. I'll find a better group for you. Just the manipulation And thank goodness, a couple of those women knew it was wrong, felt very manipulated. And when they told her, no, I'm not leaving the group. I've been in this group a long time and I love it, blah, blah, blah. She met with one of them a second time, asked for a second meeting and still tried to talk this woman into that. So thank goodness they told me. Two of the women actually did leave the group. They did leave when this woman said, you you should leave the group. But um, that turned into something as well. So this, I'm sharing these stories Because these are what go along with these chapters in your book. And so many people ask you and ask me, well, when this happened, what was going on with your parents? Or did your parents know about (laughs) this? Or or did your parents speak up at all? Yeah, Did your parents say anything? But anyways, so um, it was a very, very challenging time. Very exhausting. uh, Very heartbreaking. All the speaking up. And in the end, not getting anywhere anywhere with it, you know, after two years, I was really beaten down. Yeah. Really beaten down. I, I got depressed. It started affecting my health. There were some times where I could barely get out of bed by the, you know, the second half of two years of trying to speak up and help change this. One of the really heartbreaking things for me that um, became a realization for me after all of these meetings and the anonymous surveys and the community meeting where people were so courageously sharing their stories. And they once again were left unheard and felt minimized and invisible 
um, a realization that came for me later is, uh, you know, that summer after 2019, you know, we had, we had just left the church and there was a lot of, uh, stuff going on in the world, uh, racial unrest and, um, racial justice issues. And, you know, that was very important to me. I mean, I, I went to the big march with 20,000 people in Hollywood. I had had uh, so many friends who had experienced, um, these things, people mm-hmm. of color, my friends of color. Um, I mean, I'm half Puerto Rican myself, but I'm very light skinned. So I, you know, I cannot claim to at all know what it feels like for my friends who have dealt with some, some un, not okay things. Um, but that said, uh, my point is that was an important thing. And I had heard many stories from your friends because you had so many friends who, well, actually, in your primary friend group, <laughs> you were usually the only white guy. Most of your friends were either African-American or Latino, and um, that was just how you grew up. And, in fact, we had one, um, one mailman that used to come to our house. You probably remember this, but Uh-oh. whenever he would come and see you with all your friends, he'd go, oh, there's glow-in-the-dark Austin. And, and oh, he was no. black himself. He was black. And oh, he just no. thought it was so hilarious every time he'd come because you're so, so pale. No, you can never repeat that ever. Now everyone's going to call me that. You're so pale white. And all of your friends were so colorful, you know, and you just looked like an albino. Oh, my but, gosh. Um, so he would always make these jokes about it. But, um, you know, growing up, your friends would share different stories of things that they had gone through um, and things that they dealt with just because of their skin color, that are irrefutably um, just not right. And things that you would never have to deal with, with your skin color. And so they would share these stories. I can remember one time, actually, some of your friends saying, uh, they were telling me in the kitchen, like, yeah, we're so glad when we go to Target, we're really glad when Austin's with us because then no one looks at us suspiciously and they don't look at us like we're shoplifting. And I was like, wow, this is a reality for them. You know, but they would share stories like that all the time. And um, when all of this stuff was was really coming to the forefront where a lot of people were talking about it um, in that summer of 2019, I mean, that's an, that's an issue all the time of discussion, a topic of discussion, but it was very uh, prevalent at that, at that time in the summer. And some of your friends were sharing stories and, and I'm hearing these words and they're saying, they're talking about their experiences, and they're using these adjectives of feeling minimized, mm-hmm. invisible, marginalized, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Having to prove themselves. All of these things that they were saying, and I had, it was a moment, and I know where I was in my backyard when this moment happened for me, where I was listening and for, for weeks, I had been listening to more stories, and I had this moment where I flashed back to their stories at church, to the surveys, and the things said in those surveys, to the community meeting, and these courageous young people who shared their stories. And now I was realizing, you were the only white kid in that room. I mean, even you're part Puerto Rican, but you don't look it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it hit me because I was like, wow, wait a minute. They were not only experiencing this in their 
world life, at the workplace, at school, wherever, they're experiencing this at their own church. Yeah. And I realized that every person in that room at that community meeting, every young person that was there to tell a story, they were all these other races, not white. And the adjectives that they used to describe their experiences in that church were the same. Mm. Mm -hmm. Invisible, silenced, marginalized, continually feeling like they have to prove themselves, jump through hoops in order to be good enough for God. Yeah. But one of the ones that really stood out to me was marginalized. And I remember I actually cried that day in my backyard because I thought, holy smokes, these incredible young people, I've watched them grow up. They are so respectful, have an incredible work ethic. They are good students. Mm -hmm. They are good community servants in this community. All of the amazing things about these young people, and it was finally dawning on me, they deal with this so often in their daily life, and they've been dealing with it at church. They've been squashed and oppressed. That was another word they used a lot, oppressed, at their own church. And I thought, you know, they should be able to come to church and just feel the love, the acceptance, the support, walk in the door and know that they are viewed as this incredible, phenomenal human being, these strong, impressive young people of character and integrity. And instead, they're using the same adjectives of how they felt in the world as a person of color and how they feel they're viewed and treated in their own church community. And that, gosh, sorry, Austin, that makes me cry. Um, That was just still is a deep heartbreak for me because that is damaging. Mm -hmm. What kind of message is that to a person? Any person of any age, but these young people who grew up in that church community. And I remember after that, you know, seeing that uh, that church group, you know, took on a space of we're going to speak up for racial injustice and we're going to march for racial injustice and would speak publicly. You know, you have to be a voice for the voiceless. And if justice doesn't happen, you have to keep speaking up for the voiceless until justice happens. We must advocate, blah, 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 blah. Which would be great, yeah. except the fact is that becomes virtue signaling. That becomes false. When you are the person, you are the leaders that in your own flock, you are squashing and silencing all these people of color. It just happened to be that way. They did it to everybody there, but... It just happened to be a church where there were a lot of people of all these different races. This is one of the things I loved when I found that church. Yeah, definitely. I loved that there were so many people there from every background. I loved that. But if you're going to be out there speaking about how important it is to be a voice and to advocate for the voiceless, then... 
what does that mean? When you are ostracizing and oppressing and marginalizing the people in your own flock. Yep. I don't know. I don't know what to think of that. It's just really heartbreaking. And I think a lot of things in a church like that, when you have a very controlling, fear-based community like that, again, I don't know what causes people to be that blind to it. And I know when I was there, I was blind to a lot of things. When you're in it, you can't see it clearly. Yeah. Because you love the people so much. I stayed longer than I wish I had because I loved the people, my friends there. They're still my friends. I still speak to them all the time. I have best friends from there that I text or talk with probably, well, every day, actually. Every other day, some of them. All the time. But you love the people. And something happens with that. And 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 to be out there speaking about all these racial injustice issues, but not give a voice to these people sharing their truths in your own flock? I don't know, again, if that's that cognitive dissonance, if it's brainwashing, if it's trauma bonding, yeah. if it's narcissism. I don't know what that is that causes that, but it's really heartbreaking because I think it becomes an obstacle for growth. It becomes an obstacle for the truth to fill up the space in your heart because your heart is filled up with... um. I don't know. Fogginess that is definitely not the truth of the situation. But you just can't see it, I guess. I don't know. I really loved, a few episodes ago, you had those two guests on, Sovi and Lucy, who had fled the Amish community yeah, in the middle of the night. Yeah, that was an amazing story. Their story was so powerful. It was very compelling. It was so like intense and just their courage. And it was just amazing to hear their courage and see how hope-filled they are now. But... One thing that really stood out to me when they were speaking on your on your podcast a few episodes ago was when they were sharing, when Sophie was saying, you know, when she got your book, she didn't really think she was going to be able to relate to it. And I thought to myself, oh yeah, you would think it's way different as an Amish person for just a, you know, a, I don't know, non-denominational Christian church somewhere. <laughs> yeah. She shared that when she started reading your book, she started seeing all these parallels and she couldn't believe how many things in your book paralleled the experience in the Amish community with the extreme purity culture, the unhealthy shaming and the unhealthy legalism. And hearing her talk about that, I thought, wow, this is fascinating to me because when you're in a church like the one we were in, you look at these other churches that have this reputation for being a cult and controlling, like Scientology or the Amish, whatever it is. And so many of us, when I was at that church, I don't know, a few years ago now, it's probably four years ago. No, it's longer, probably six years ago. But anyways, when I was still at that church and the Scientology documentary came out that was uh, by Leah Remini, and I watched it and you would look at that and go, wow, now that's extreme. That is so extreme. That is abusive. That's a cult. That's spiritually abusive. That's psychological abuse. That's this, that's that. And You see it, and that seems so bad and so extreme. And there were a few little things in the Scientology one where I could go, oh, that little part reminds me of our church. But the rest of it, you think it doesn't even relate. Right, that's way worse than we are. And Mm -hmm. several of my friends who watched that Scientology documentary, friends from church, 
said the same thing I said when we were talking about it at lunch. We all thought the same thing. Like, wow, can you imagine being in a church like that? I would also have viewed the Amish as way controlling, so oppressive, all of that. The longer you're out of it, once you are out of that, it's easier and easier to look back and go, oh, holy smokes. Yeah. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of parallels here with that controlling fear-based religiosity with leaders that are a dictatorship instead of a spiritual community of peers. So to hear Sovi and Lucy share about having read your book and seeing so many parallels to the Amish, it was very, I don't know, for me it was very powerful because when I was in that church, I would have thought, I would have been one of those people thinking uh, the Amish, Scientology, certain other religions, those are, those are the controlling ones. Those are the unhealthy ones. And the truth is, I was right smack in the middle of an unhealthy, toxic, controlling church. This is the end of part one of this conversation. If you are listening to this on the day of release, Tuesday, May 23rd, part two will be releasing on Thursday, May 25th. Of course, if you're listening any other time, just click on the next episode to hear part two. See you there. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation's just getting started. If you have any questions or comments, or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers Podcast.